Welcome to Cardboard Philosophy, the board game podcast where we talk about nothing serious, seriously. Each episode, we randomly pick from a list of niche, deep board game topics and have at it. So we invite you to join us at the table, listen in on our conversations, and let us know what you think. Welcome once again to our bi-weekly foray into philosophizing over cardboard, plastic, and chits. My name is Evan. And I'm joined, as always, by my illustrious co-hosts, Robert and Steve. How's it going, guys? Hello. Hey. Let's skip the formalities and go straight to rolling some dice. And we've got a number nine today, which is a Robert question. Is it worth listening to our viewers, given how differently they digest games from us? I don't know how much I have to say, because that really sums it up. So I did a great job writing that (laughs) three months ago, whenever I did. But I guess in more detail i mean they don't play as often the same game as often as we do and they play in a very different context than us so maybe we can discuss what that looks like like what is their context and what is our context and then because of this because we play and we approach games differently how should we listen to them like how can we Mm. take a positive or negative review and understand you know how that relates to whether or not we will like it or whether or not we should buy it and kind of be aware of the bias they might have. Because I definitely see a trend with specific reviewers, at least, of liking certain kinds of games. And my take is that those games are just better the first three times you play them. But the games that get, you know, become better over time, like the fifth, sixth, seventh game, that's when it gets really, really good. Those games, they don't tend to rate as highly because they don't get to the sixth or seventh play. That's kind of like the crux of the question. Something that I do want to dive into, not necessarily right now, but eventually is... Is a single play or two plays of a game enough to review it? Put a pin in that, though, because before I get to that, I do want to see if there is a point, I guess, in delineating the difference between a board game reviewer and a movie reviewer. Because to your point, a movie reviewer is watching a lot of content. They're engaging with that a lot. Same with like a book reviewer. They're reading a lot of books. Most people are only ever going to engage with that medium once. Right. And to your point, a lot of people are only ever going to play some of the games they buy once. Is there something there to that? Or should we be looking at board games different because they are more of a, I guess, investment from both a cost and a size standpoint? I mean, games have, they're in a unique medium. There's going to be things about them that we should consider differently from, say, something like movies or any other art form. Um, But there's probably a lot of overlap. And so it's probably worth like bringing up or comparing maybe both of the things you brought up are kind of tied like how many times do you have to play a game to know if you like it if it's good uh before you can start recommending it before you can start talking about it so maybe that's like a whole other topic but it is kind of interesting to think about how often you're going to play the game versus how much the reviewer has played the game and like what those sessions were like, you know, were, was it three nights in a row with the same people, you know, like, um, I, I think that's something that maybe we don't think about too much that is worth thinking about for sure. And I also want to clarify that I don't think any reviewer does anything in bad faith. Mm. So I don't want this discussion yeah. to be like mean towards them or negative towards them. I just want to consider how we should approach, you know, reading and comprehending reviews. And so Evan's question about is one or two times enough? I don't know. Enough is a really, it's really relative. It's a tough word. I can't tell you if it's enough. If I'm only going to play the game once or twice, then yeah, the reviewer playing the game once or twice is in some sense enough. (laughs) But ideally, you know, if I'm buying a game, it ends up being one of my favorites that I revisit time and time again, right? That's the ultimate goal when you're buying a game. It's like finding the 10. I don't know what enough means. And I'm curious if you guys have thoughts on how much is enough. Well, 
I think we've also talked about just as amongst as friends, like the idea of should a game be good like the first time you play it? Like if it doesn't grab you, do you even give it a second chance? You want to at least see something. You want to see some potential. Like if it just yeah. completely had nothing yeah. for you, like probably not going to totally change the net, you know, with a replay. Like um, there's only so much variability. <laughs> I, I agree and I disagree to an extent though because sometimes the box can really set expectations in a certain yeah. direction and if you hit that play experience thinking oh you know the box is super beige it's going to be a thinky euro and then it winds up being this like knife fight in the phone booth yeah. that might feel really bad because you're going in expecting like Concordia or something that's you know a little bit less tense like that. I feel like my gut is saying at least two before you can really start making some calls. I, I I don't know. I mean, you hope to see some potential in the first one, but you can go into a movie having seen some trailers or read some stuff or heard some things, and you have like certain expectations. That first time you see it, you're like, whoa, that was not what I expected. And maybe, you know, you go back, you give it a second chance. Now that you kind of know what you're in for. I almost want to say three or four, because hmm. I do think there are some games that are designed to feel really, really good for the first couple of plays. And they kind of give mm. you this illusion that there's a lot more going on under the hood. Now, an experienced reviewer or an experienced gamer might be able to see through that, just like an experienced movie reviewer might be able to watch a movie and go, yeah, there's literally nothing that this film has to say. It's just eye candy. Mm. And that's kind of the equivalent to some of those games. But I do think, you know, sometimes you get those ones that, hide it fairly well and then by the third or fourth play you're going this is just the same experience that we've had i could play this on autopilot and we'd all wind up within like five points of each other so the the question about how much should you play a game before making a judgment i think as a consumer one game there's too many games to spend too much time um mm. i think your judgment and your opinion will improve as you play it more it'll be more nuanced and you'll have more understanding but yeah if it's not fun after a game don't play it again like why uh, there's there's so many yeah. fun games unless you you know sometimes you feel like there's some promise you're like man i don't know about this first game but i feel like there could be something there so i'll try it again but that's it's still giving you something on that first play right it didn't yeah. like, leave you totally cold but in terms of um the reviewer i'm not a reviewer so i don't know what it's like to be a reviewer so i don't know if the question is how much is enough for a reviewer i'm not going to pass judgment on a reviewer i don't know what their life is like but maybe if we know they've only played X number of times, how should that affect our decision of whether to buy it or play it? You know, so if, if we know they've only played it once or twice, I think we should know that, you know, transparency is good. And then how should that affect our judgment? If we, if we know they've played it five plus times, should that affect our, our judgment differently? Should we take them more seriously or something? That's the question I want to tackle. Should the recency of the play also be factored into that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I definitely feel different about games a minute after I play them and a week after <laughs> I play them. Yeah. Yeah. I would be a little more curious to hear what somebody who has played a game five plus times has to say. I feel like they would have seen those first couple games and they would know what that's like, but then they kind of yeah. see what goes beyond that. So mm -hmm. to me, I feel like it's, you're almost always going to get a little more out of that person. When somebody's played, you know, a lot of times, especially with the same group, then meta is biasing them. You know, okay, like yeah. the same game can feel different with different groups and if you've you're only played once or twice there's not enough time for meta to develop and so you're maybe you're getting even a arguably better opinion a more objective opinion than if you're 10 games in with the same group you guys have kind of turned that game into your own it's no longer the game that i will experience on my first game so you might be too far gone you know so to speak and i think that's why i kind of gravitate towards the 
I'm going to take the person that's played it three or four times, not necessarily more seriously, but maybe value that a little bit more than just one time because you've had one or two games to kind of warm into it. A meta might be starting to develop if it's with the same players, but you're still fresh enough with it that you don't necessarily have the, oh, Steve's going for that red track again. I knew he was going to do it, and you're like trying to cut Steve off before he starts moving up the red track too quickly. So... With that in mind, we still haven't quite gotten into like the difference of how like, well, I guess we're kind of getting there. The difference of how a reviewer and how we, like, should we listen to them, basically, right? Like the initial question, I guess, like, how do we process what they're telling us or how do we take into account these differences? There's more differences to talk about, I think, before we can really answer that. We talked about okay. like number of times that are played, but also just think about the context. Like for me, game night is like a thing I set up with my friends. It's a special thing. It's not super regular. Like, yeah, once a week, which, you know, is more regular than many probably, but it's not every day in the yeah. afternoon, you know, for work or something. It's like an evening relax, have fun kind of thing. And just that atmosphere changes how I would feel about a game. And the other thing is learning the game. I bet their process of learning is much different. They have to like rapid fire learn a bunch of stuff. If mm -hmm. I have like three to four games that I'm trying to learn at the same time, my head is just exploding. It's like too much new stuff um, at once. And so I bet they learn differently too. They might, you know, skim more than really read rule books. I'm not sure. But when they describe a game as being confusing or unintuitive, maybe it won't be for me or vice versa. Maybe it'll be really obvious to them because they've played so much. And for me, it's not intuitive. Mm -hmm. So I think we also need to consider those two differences, atmosphere and how they learn. The how they learn thing I think is interesting too because when we were chatting with Austin last week from IV, he was talking about some of the shows that he's done with some people and they'll literally show up like 10 minutes before they go live and it's like, hey, uh, what are the rules? Quick. And they've just played enough games that they can kind of like pick it up and go really, really quickly because yeah. for the most part, unless it's some super innovative new thing that we've never seen before, a worker placement game is going to just be a permutation on you put a guy here you do a thing maybe you can't put another guy there maybe you can put multiple guys there but that's really the only minutia that you're going to get i think the setting and the context is also worth denoting as you say because if you're going in with the thought of it being a review in mind especially if it's you know multiple people contributing to that review I think that's different than uh, I'm, I'm trying not to name drop a reviewer, but I'm I'm going to say like a space biff, for example, whereas as far as I know, that's one single person yeah. who is looking at the game, but he's playing those with friends. Yeah. So you're kind of getting that mix of the social dynamic with the professional dynamic. He's there to do a job, but they're there to goof off and have fun with a friend. We've focused on, say, like uh, I'm imagining like YouTube or written reviewers, like kind of more professional as you know like as much mm. as one can be i suppose uh mm. but there's also like amazon reviews there's board game geek reviews um there's i don't know i feel like there might be a few other places <laughs> like your yeah. friends oh, now we're cooking you know with gas. people people that you hear about just like folks that you know talking about uh games and they tell you what they think is it worth considering all of those different types of reviews or is the question more focused on the more like Re regular uh, reviewers like the with channels and um, who review a lot of games the question is definitely focused on the latter but we're here now we could talk about them all I, I think Amazon reviews those reviews have their own syntax and language to them where you kind of have to know how to read between the lines because if someone's giving it a glowing review you can usually get a good gauge on what 
they think is a good game based on what they're praising mm-hmm. in that particular title. But if someone hates something, I find that also very telling because it'll usually be very, very focused on one thing. And if that one thing is like, oh, you know, we had to negotiate with our friends. Oh, cool. I, I like negotiation games. This person clearly doesn't. And that might actually tell me that this is a good game because that I can tell that person is against that particular mechanic or, you know, deck building, for example. Oh, you know, the deck building in this was awful. Um, and I read that and go, oh, well, you know, as someone who loves deck building, that might actually work because what they're describing sounds good to me. I think you could say a lot of those things about the professional quote unquote reviewers. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I think the most important thing is that the reviewer is consistent. Like if I know they mm. don't like something because I've seen them express uh, that opinion or that or a variation of that opinion over and over again, when they say Stevenson's rocket is stupid because you can veto <laughs> people and that Dang. annoys me, I can say, oh, I bet I'm going to love Stevenson's rocket because the things that annoy you bring great joy to me. So I think consistency is like very, very huge um, when it comes to professional reviewers. And and that's where like, say, a uh, uh, Amazon or a board game geek or wherever you just kind of catch a random comment. It's kind of hard to know a whole lot, like uh, except for what Evan said. You know, maybe you can kind of suss out some some stuff just from how they talk about things. That definitely is the drawback to going to a board game geek, though. Is unless I'm actually going to take the time to go through somebody's profile and almost stalk them, like creep them <laughs> and see what their tastes are. Yeah, I'm just going to take you at your word that you think that. Uh, Stevenson's Rocket is a three and bad game is all you've written. So like that can get kind of nebulous to Robert's point where it's, you know, I enjoyed this mechanic in there. You didn't, but there's no actual discourse in those forums or in those uh, ratings because you can just kind of shoot your mouth off without any repercussion. And I think that's something that is an advantage to being a professional reviewer and having access to those guys is they are held to a bit of a higher standard as a result of that because they are posting on a more public platform, their name is associated with it. They do have to be more consistent. The speed at which reviewers engage with new games, Mm -hmm. I think leads them to undervalue what we might call subtle games. Mm -hmm. Games that have mechanisms or rules that are not explicit. You kind of need to play to understand them and they're not flashy. So the flashy games, I think, tend to do well on professional with professional reviewers because they immediately grab you. They're, it's obvious why they're fun, but there are some games that are not obvious why they're fun. And maybe you could mm-hmm. argue that makes those games worse. But as somebody who likes a few subtle games, I definitely, looking through the reviews of those subtle games, uh, see that they're rated lower, even, even by non-professional mm-hmm. reviewers, even by kind of BGGers or Amazoners. Something that I think contribute to that is the amount of content they are consuming. When we were first introducing this topic uh, at the start of the episode, Furnace came to mind, uh, which came out a couple of years ago. It's a weird game that is kind of split down the middle. So there's a bidding phase where it's, I would call a fairly innovative auction mechanic where you have a limited number of tokens uh, in ascending power. You place those tokens on a card. If you have the highest bid on that card, you win the card to go into your tableau. If you have the lower bid, you then get a multiplier on an effect at the top of the card, um, which is a really cool mechanism. Mm -hmm. And then the second half of the game is just a traditional resource conversion cue pusher. 
And so a lot of reviews for that game will call out, oh, you know, it's just this Q-Pusher Euro thing that we've seen a million times before. But I think that kind of almost does the game dirty in a way, because if this is your first foray into that kind of game, there's not really another option I can recommend as far as a cool bidding mechanism and a Euro conversion game. Because we've experienced, you know, 30 different Q pushers. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Furnace gets the raw end of the stick, but it's still, you know, a cool game and a neat way of using that mechanic. And that can kind of get overshadowed by the glut of games that that reviewer has played. Yeah, I think reviewers are useless to people who have played less than, say, 30 or 50 games. Like, <laughs> it's, it's like yeah. those people are so far gone. Like, yeah. even us, as people who are not reviewers, but who have played many games, like, it's really hard for us to remember what it's like to have played less than 30 games, let's say. And reviewers yeah. are like yeah. thousands of games in sometimes. So it's just, it's not, their opinion is not as useful. And you can see that, I think, based on like what sells well on Amazon and what the reviewers love. Like yeah. Brass Birmingham is not what's selling amazing on Amazon. You know, even though it's like number mm. one on BGG and <laughs> many reviewers praise it. It's probably Cards Against Humanity or something like that or Uno. Yeah. So maybe in the question of like, should we listen to the reviewers? We should first define who we are. Uh you know, as kind of like hobby gamers who are deep into it, I think there's room for us to listen to them. But if you are new, uh, they are useless, in my opinion, to you. Yeah. 50 games later, they'll be great for you. The second game I ever purchased was a rave review by somebody who I will not name, and I will not name the game either, because it will get us into hot water. Wow. Uh, and it was like gushing over this game, and I was so excited to get it. I think it was the first game I ever actually paid for. Got it home, unboxed it, played it i hated it i played it again i hated it i played it a third time i was like i do not get it and that reviewer has kind of sullied themselves a little bit because of that interaction i just was like i'm never watching this guy again he's so wrong <laughs> now obviously i can go back and say okay well you know i didn't really have much experience with what i liked at that time but i think you're right i think if you've only played like four or five designer quote unquote or you know quote-unquote premium games in your life probably avoid the reviews and just look for something that sounds fun yeah yeah i think it's you know there's different crowds and you gotta know your crowd a little bit and there's like subtleties there's like the high level like there's the reviewers who have played thousands of games and then there's the bgg crowd who have played hundreds and then there's like the amazon crowd who is maybe i don't know i'm just like played 20 you know, or something like that, like or family games or just certain types. Um, these are different crowds. They're going to have different opinions. Like sometimes I play with different crowds, you know, so it's like I have different games that like I can take the same game to different groups and it's going to get different re receptions. You know, it's all yeah. kind of subjective. So like I think understanding that, yeah, like a reviewer is pretty deep into it, probably assuming that they have been doing it a while. Um, to even start doing that, you feel like you have to be at a certain point to say, you know, I want to continuously do this and put this content out, you know? How important is it to know where the reviewer is on their journey in the hobby? If they're only, you know, 60 or 70 games in versus someone that's like 2000, is that important to flag for someone like us or for someone that is, you know, more into the hobby than we are? to know where they're at before they can have credibility to that review. I think it's just nice to know kind of as much as you can. Yes. You don't know what exactly you should put out or like, is it worth saying exactly how many times you've played a game? I mean, that seems helpful. It seems like it gives you some, some info, but maybe not everybody keeps track of that or that just gets in the way of them actually getting the review out there. So, you know, like that's the, the difference of actually even getting a review up. Yeah, but I think in general, the more you can know about the person and their experience just seems 
better. You can compare it to your own better. Yeah, I think that's the bottom line. The the more that you know about their context, the better you can you know suit it to your needs. Mm. So if I know there's somebody who has similar tastes, that's helpful. If I know they have different tastes, that's also helpful. I just need to know the context in which they played that game and they play games generally. So mm. in terms of should we listen to them? I think so. I think we should listen to them, but not in the obvious way of like, oh, if reviewers like it, I must also like it. Or if they don't like it, I don't yeah. like it. I think that's like a kind of the most primitive i don't want to say that but primitive way i guess of using reviews as opposed to using it as you would kind of like a friend like i know my friend doesn't like whatever christopher nolan movies so it's not a surprise they didn't like oppenheimer but i might yeah and that's where like just a reviewer the more you can read their stuff watch you know see (laughs) get a sense of who they are the more they tell you um and that's kind of where we mentioned earlier just the more they have put out there versus somebody who you just see one comment you know um you just have so little to go off of there that it's it's hard to know for sure and i think it's also important to know that even if you agree with that person almost 100 percent of the time if they're like this is the must play game of the year that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be your game of the year this guy isn't even a reviewer but i've slowly started to realize with cole Worley, like i love the guy i respect a lot of what he says but sometimes an endorsement, I will not like the game that he says is great. And that's okay. I can completely understand why he likes that. And I like playing them because I kind of like to get inside of his mind more. But it doesn't necessarily mean because I love Root as much as I do. And because I love his design philosophy as much as I do. That I'm going to like the games that he likes. Like Ankh. Cole, what's up with liking <laughs> Ankh? <laughs> we will talk about this one day. Is that, is that it? Do you have anything else to add? Because I have the best idea for our impromptu segment. But if we're not there yet... I'm glad you do, because I'm very not creative with those. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of it. Like, we we absolutely should listen to reviewers of all kinds, uh, just being trying to be aware of all of those differences. And it's like, yeah, I think some aren't as obvious, right? Like, some of the ones we brought up, or that you guys have brought up, I didn't really think too much about. So, yeah. I think one thing that's also not necessarily important to call out but interesting is if you look at a lot of reviewers top tens a lot of them are not modern like and by modern i mean like the last 10 years a lot of them are between like 2000 and 2015 there are exceptions to that but i think that's really interesting and i don't think that means that newer games are worse than older games I think it just means it's a comfort thing for them. And that kind of comes back to the, you know, they're playing so many things and they're only really engaged with them once or twice. Those comfort things, like those castles of Burgundies, those Concordias are just like mainstays that have always been there for them and probably what got them into the hobby in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's nostalgia, but also my hot take is those are the games they actually played a lot. Yeah. It's hard to love a game that you played twice, you know? Um, But the games that they played 20 times, they still remember and they still love. Well, and that's probably another layer or a factor to think of that maybe is hard to suss out is like, how long have they been playing games relative to me? You know, like how long have they been around? Like, you know, what's the time frame that they've they've been around to be looking at games? Because, yeah, if they say my favorite game is X and they've only been playing for the last three years, mm-hmm. you know, like that obviously limits kind of, I mean, you can buy an older game, but I don't know. I just there's they're not going to have a nostalgia factor for, right. a, you know, game from 10 years ago if they've only been playing for three. So it's just a factor for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's going to affect you, like how long you've been playing games. Yeah. You're not going to have that nostalgia hit of, oh, I remember when I backed the Kickstarter and, you know, like we all stayed up playing the whatever, whatever, you know. And I wouldn't say it's like a deal breaker for, for me if that reviewer 
hasn't been around that long. Like obviously there's not a ton of people no. that have been around since the eighties that are still, you know, super active to the point where they can talk about like the history of the hobby from the eighties to today. But I really like it when you find people that can. So I have two ideas for the impromptu. Maybe we can do both. Okay. So the first one, we could just like name our favorite reviewer. Eh, funnish, not great. The second <laughs> idea is BGG has a feature where you can look at your largest disparities in ratings, like of what you rated the game oh, okay. and what like the average rating. And we yeah. can talk about our largest disparities. Yeah. Both How do positive you do and that? negative. Okay. So you click on your name, you go to profile, stats, largest disparities in ratings. Okay. So we're going to do um, our favorite reviewer. And then we're going to do the board game that Board Game Geek likes more or the most and that we dislike the most. And then the game that we like the most that BGG dislikes the most. Or has the biggest there's, like disparity. Yeah. yeah. There, there's mm -hmm. probably a yep. cleaner way of describing that, but that's uh, close enough. My favorite reviewer is probably Board Gems, a dude named Daryl. He focuses, he, he's one of those guys where who's been, who's been in the hobby for such a yeah. long time that he can talk about the history. That's a good one. And a lot of his stuff is about like old games that are still good. And I've discovered so many great games because I've only been in this for like four or five years. Um, but I've been playing games from the 90s and loving it. My biggest disparities... This is so spicy that I'll tell you my top three. Oh, let's uh, go. On both ends, okay? So, Guillotine, I rate a 2, and BGG <laughs> rates a 6.397. Magic the Gathering, I rate a 3, and BGG <laughs> rates a 7.392. Uh, Cubitos, I rate a 3, and BGG <laughs> rates a 7.012. Okay? Those are my top three disparities of me not liking it and BGG loving it. And then in terms of the positive, Orongo, I rate a 9, and BGG rates 5.75. Yellow and Yangtze, I rate a 9.8, and BGG rates 6.77. Rex, which is a reprint retheme of Dune, I rate a 9.5, and BGG rates 6.5. So if I would really want to talk about one of these, I'll tell you about Orongo. Ding. It is uh, definitely a ding. It is an amazing game that i think has a lower rating because of its production quality yeah than the game itself because the game is actually extremely simple and everybody i've showed it to has at least liked it and many have also loved it it is a game where you first auction off to determine how many tiles you'll be placing on a shared board and then whoever bids the most they have to actually pay their bid and they get to put out three of their tiles Whoever bids the second most and third most don't pay their bids, but they only put out two or one respectively. And you are allowed to bid zero during the simultaneous bid. And if you bid zero, you take the pot. And the pot includes all of the winning bids from the previous rounds, including this one. And it's a game about making connections on Easter Island to between different goods to put up um, monuments. And it's a simple race to X points. The rules take like three minutes and it's got an incredibly clever auction tile placement system, but also the board randomly generates itself over the course of the game in a very cool way that I haven't seen before. So just everything about it is just like standout, innovative, yet so simple and digestible. Just like top tier Knizia. Love it. Uh, I hope it gets a reprint. So I'll talk about that one at length and leave it to you guys. I also hope that gets a reprint. I feel like that was one of those games that kind of came out during a phase of BGG where they wanted like just really pretty shiny stuff. And if we had a pretty shiny version of that made now, it would probably do very, very well from what I've heard of the game. I really want to play it. So good. You want to go Steve? Well, 
in my top three, Arango is one of them. Um, it's my second yeah. one. Um, my top top one is Hot Lead, Hot Lead, Hot okay. Lead, Hot Lead. Nice. Um, Ding. Ding. Yeah. Ding. Also, Canizia. I've talked about it before. Nice and simple. Um, and then my other one is Monikers. Um, I don't know. Wow. I yeah. It's I have it very very highly rated, and I don't know. I think it's maybe just like a simple party game that BGG is kind of meh on. But it's my favorite party game by far. Yeah, I think my 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 delta isn't huge, but it's still kind of there. Um, uh-huh. And then as far as like a negative one, like something that I have rated <laughs> low, uh, Spirit Island. I just wasn't crazy about it, and just the way that I use the ratings, I have it like down at like a five. <laughs> <laughs> um, well i was worried about getting people coming after me but uh, i don't I know. have to worry about that anymore it's just i mean for me a five is average i had like an okay time it was super confusing we didn't have a great time it wasn't fun so i'm just like that's where it landed i'm sorry i'm sorry you think i'm gonna blast him for a spirit island five i gave magic a three i'm the one getting, <laughs> getting destroyed here <laughs> uh who's your favorite reviewer steve oh right this is going to be hilarious because I don't know the name, like the actual name of their channel, but um, Monique and Naveen, Naveen from Before Naveen, You Play. Before You Play It, yes. I really enjoy their videos um, just because they're so thorough. They kind of teach you the game. They play some of it. You can see exactly like how things work together. It's great for seeing what a game yeah. is going to be like and to help you teach it to other people, you know, like for buying it, for learning it. Like mm-hmm. it's just nice and thorough. I feel like they don't like add a lot of fluff content or stuff. I have to like, you know, skim through too much or you can usually find the stuff you're looking for. Well, um, and you know, they just seem great. Like it's just, you know, it's easy to, uh, hear them explain stuff to you. I feel like they have a nice, they're pretty succinct and, and good at explaining things. Um, and they obviously have like a good, like rapport with each other, it seems. So that's just fun. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, great, great stuff. I've already talked about them, but I think I'm going to go with Space Biff. That's nice. one that I don't necessarily always agree with, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. their reviews are just so almost poetic. Yes. And yeah, they're fun. evocative of what it's like to actually experience that game. Yes. Um, and they're also like not afraid to just say, hey, listen, I don't know if I actually like this game, but the experience was cool. And so check it out. Um, as far as Deltas, um, this might take some heat off of Steve. Uh, BGG has given Everdell a 7.8. I gave it a 3.5. Um, my next one is uh, Monsters and Meeples, which I don't think anyone has heard of. Nope. BGG has given it a 5.7. I gave it a 2. Um, and then my next one is Wingspan, which I have at a 5.5. BGG has it at a 7.9. Checks out. Yeah, on the other end of things, uh, I gave Pipeline a fairly high rating. BGG does not agree with me at a 6.99. I have it above a 9. As far as uh, high society is concerned, I gave it a 9.1. BGG thinks it is below a 7 at 6.9. And uh, my final one is another ding, Medici, which I have at 9. BGG has it at 6.8. Which... I think is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And on that statement of truth from your valiant host, Evan, we're going to wrap things up. Um, If you want to complain about the games we picked and our opinions, uh, we're not reviewers, so you can't come at us, but you can still send us an email at cardboardphilosophypod at gmail.com. Be sure to check us out on all fine podcast services or purveyors or whatever you want to say and uh, make sure to go play some games 